Amen. Gosh, it's good to worship with y'all. Tell you what, um, I'm glad that you're here with us. I'm always glad that you're here with us. Uh, and not in like a controlling way, but I notice when you're not here with us or when you're joining us online and we miss you when you're not here. Uh, you may notice someone is missing today. Today is the first day of sabbatical for Susie Bates, our executive pastor of Family Ministry. So uh, please be praying for her and for her family as she kind of steps into this journey of rest and restoration and all the stuff that God has for her. So if you say, where's Susie? That, she's on sabbatical. That's where she is. Uh, but I'm glad you're here, and I want to relay a story to you. I recently was explaining to my wife why I love airports. Do you like airports? Did someone groan? My wife was groaning. I know some people hate them. I love airports. I can spend a lot of time in an airport before I reach my limit. Like for me, uh, like I just, uh, my happy place is sitting in an airport bar waiting for my plane. I just feel close to God there. I don't know why. I just, there's just something about it. And I'm telling this to my wife and she says, why? And she kind of makes a face like, why? You know, like, that's stupid. What, why would you like that? And I said something to her in the moment, and I made a mental note. I'm like, that's really brilliant. I should say that to more people. Do you ever do that? You say something and then surprise yourself with your insight? Um, so I made a mental note, and I said, I should say that to other people. And that's what brings us to today. So I, I'm going to tell you what I told her uh, that I thought was really brilliant. Um, she said, why do you like airports so much? I said, what's awesome to me about airports is no one is really present in the moment in an airport. Airports are all about anticipation and all about the future. Everyone is future focused. Everyone is thinking about where am I going? What am I going to do when I get there? And my wife was like, yeah, that sounds awful. <laughs> because if you know my wife, uh, you know she has this gift of presence. Wherever Becky goes, she is like fully present with the people there. That's why everybody loves to be around her. Uh, I do not have that gift. I am always thinking about the future. I'm always thinking about what's next. And that's its own like sort of thing. It's a gift. That's why God brought us together. We balance one another out and we can help each other. But when I go to an airport, I'm like, these are my people. You know, everyone's thinking about the future. Everyone's thinking about what comes next. If you start a conversation with someone in an airport, you're not like, tell me about your childhood. You don't ask that. You say, where are you flying to, right? That you're talking about what is next. And I love that you're talking about the future. Airports are places full of anticipation. And that does something to my soul, that something fun is about to happen. And I know not everyone loves that, but for me, I really love that. Now, some of you might be wired like me when it comes to time. You're always thinking about the future. You're always thinking about what is next. Some of you may be more wired like my wife, Becky, who is very present in the moment wherever she goes. Some of you might not be like either of us. Some of you might be more connected when it comes to time to the past. You're always thinking about stuff that has happened in the past and stories and memories are very important to you. We all kind of approach this thing called time a little bit differently. Now I'm bringing this up for a reason because today God is going to interact with Habakkuk and it is going to be very future focused. 
It is going to be all about anticipation and this thing that's going to happen one day, this thing that's coming next. It's almost as if God has taken all of his people, all of Israel to the airport and he's like leading a field trip. Stay together. We got to go through security. We're going someplace, but we're not there yet. We still have to stand in line, get on the plane. There might be delays, but we're going someplace really good. We're just not there yet. And what's interesting is for Habakkuk, and I think this is probably true for all of God's people, when they hear this future place and how long it might take for them to get there, it is incredibly challenging to hear. They are not enjoying the airport on this little journey. And I think uh, we can relate to that. There are similar challenges for us in our life. Because just like the people of God in Habakkuk, God will say to each of us, I am taking you someplace special and great and worth going to. We're just not there yet. And how we respond in those moments, I think, will tell us a lot about our relationship with God. So let's look at this moment in Habakkuk's life together. Find your way to Habakkuk chapter 1. Remember last week we said, Habakkuk's having a crisis of faith. He's got some hard questions for God. He's looking at God's people and he's saying, it it feels like the, the unjust people are in charge. Those in power are exploiting those who don't have power for their own selfish gain. And what he's noticing is that the people in power have become overly secure. They, they kind of had this idea that they were untouchable. And Habakkuk goes to God and says, how are you okay with this? And God says, I'm not. Just wait, I am going to do something you never believe me, even if I told you. The Babylonians. God says, I'm going to bring in this very wicked empire, and they're going to shake all of these people and kind of tear down the power that they have, and it's going to be my judgment against them. It's almost kind of like uh, Habakkuk goes to God, his father, and is like, I'm being bullied at school. And God says, well, hey, uh, you know what I have? Here's a bigger bully, and I'm going to bring him to your school, and he's going to bully everyone, including the bully that was bullying you. And Habakkuk says, I'm not sure that's better. (laughs) You know, that's not exactly the answer that he was looking for. And so he says to God, can I ask a follow-up question? Verse 12 is his follow-up question. Lord, are you not from everlasting? My God, my Holy One, you will never die. You, Lord, have appointed them to execute judgment. You, my rock, have ordained them to punish. So them in this verse is the Babylonians. He's saying, you've ordained them to bring judgment on your people. But here is my question about this plan. Verse 13, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? You've made people like the fish in the sea, like sea creatures that have no ruler. The wicked foe pulls all of them up with hooks. He catches them in his net. He gathers them up in his dragnet. And so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and burns incense to his dragnet. For by his net, he lives in luxury and enjoys the choicest foods. Is he to keep on emptying his net, destroying nations without mercy? Okay, so he's 
shifting his concern here, and he's using this really potent metaphor. He's saying, instead of the powerful in Judah who are doing wrong stuff, now I'm really concerned about Babylon and the powerful in Babylon who are way worse. He describes them as a fisherman with a giant net, and he says, the nations are like all the fish, and Babylon just keeps going along, and they just keep capturing more and more fish, and then they enslave more and more people, and Babylon gets richer and richer, and then Babylon pats itself on the back and worships itself, because look at how rich we are. And Habakkuk says, what about them, God? How are you okay with this? Are you just going to let them keep doing what they're doing? There has to be a bigger plan. And then remember what we talked about last week, Habakkuk's posture. He's not holding back with God at all. He brings the full weight of his questions to God. And then look at what he does in chapter 2, verse 1. I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he will say to me and what answer I am to give this compl- to this complaint. So Habakkuk is leaning in to this crisis. He is upset. He is taking these questions to God. And he says, now that I've done that, I've asked you my questions, I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait for your answer. I expect you to show up and speak to this, God. And sure enough, God does. Chapter 2, verse 2. Then the Lord replied, Write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets so that a herald may run with it. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. See, the enemy is puffed up. His desires are not upright, but the righteous person will live by his faithfulness. I want to come back to these verses in a second. We want to read the rest of the chapter. But uh, what what God says here, there's there's a, a power to it that has kind of a resonance that is stuck with the people of God for centuries. In fact, uh, this Habakkuk 2.4 is quoted three times in the New Testament. Romans, Galatians, Hebrews uh, quotes Habakkuk 2.4, the righteous will live by faithfulness or by faith. So there's something in this that is really important to these sorts of moments for us as followers of God. So I'm going to come back to that, but I, I want to read the rest of the chapter first because Habakkuk says, God, these people are awful. And God says, yes, I agree. They are really awful. And there's going to be a judgment against them for all of these wrongs that they've done. And God lists five things that Babylon has done that are just evil and wicked. Uh, verse five of chapter two. He says, indeed, wine betrays him, talking about Babylon. He is arrogant and never at rest because he is as greedy as the grave. And like death is never satisfied, he gathers him to himself all the nations and takes captive all the peoples. Will not all of them taunt him with ridicule and scorn, saying, woe to him who piles up stolen goods and makes himself wealthy by extortion. How long must this go on? Will not your creditors suddenly arise? Will they not wake up and make you tremble? Then you will become their prey because you've plundered many nations. The peoples who are left will plunder you. 
For you've shed human blood, you've destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. So God basically says this, yes, I'm going to use this evil empire of Babylon to bring judgment against my people, but don't think I don't see what they're doing. I see it. And he's listing some things. The first thing that he really lists is that they profit unjustly. Like they, they are stealing and extorting from others. And he says, there's coming a day when all of those others are going to show up on Babylon's doorstep and say, pay us back. Pay us back for what you've taken from us. And what he's saying is one day, this mighty empire of Babylon that has no regard for anyone will fall. It's going to happen. Verse 9, there's more. Woe to him who builds his house by unjust gain, setting his nest on high to escape the clutches of ruin. You've plotted the ruin of many people, shaming your own house and forfeiting your life. The stones of the wall will cry out and the beams of the woodwork will echo it. God says, hey, they're also going to be held accountable because they have built their house, they built their home where they live by the oppression of others. And the very house that they live in is crying out in judgment against them. They're eventually going to fall. Verse 12, woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and establishes a town by injustice. Has not the Lord Almighty determined that the people's labor is only fuel for the fire? The nations exhaust themselves for nothing, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the water covers the sea. So he's talking about their bloodshed here. He's talking about violence in general. God's judging them for the ways that they've used violence as a tool. And he gives this powerful image that I think is not just applicable to Babylon, but to every nation, that eventually the violence of all nations will amount to nothing because the whole earth will be filled of the glory of God. And as the glory of God fills the earth, those petty, violent nations, everything they've accomplished will be meaningless, God says. Verse 15, woe to him who gives drink to his neighbors, pouring it from wineskins till they are drunk so that he can gaze on their naked bodies. You'll be filled with shame instead of glory. Now it's your turn. Drink, let your nakedness be exposed. The cup from the Lord's right hand is coming around to you and disgrace will cover your glory. The violence you've done to Lebanon will overwhelm you and your destruction of animals will terrify you for you have shed human blood. You've destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. So in this case, he's describing an image of someone getting someone else drunk so that they can take advantage of them sexually is what he's describing. And I think it's, it's not totally clear. Either God is talking about the sexual exploitation that was happening in Babylon, because that certainly was a thing. Um, but he may just be describing just their posture, their predatory behavior in general, and using that as kind of a metaphor of the way that Babylon would approach other people. I wonder if it's not maybe a combination of the two, but basically what he's saying is, listen, you have been a predator to everyone else, but eventually the tables are going to be turned and you're going to be the one who's exploited. Last thing he talks about with Babylon, verse 18. Of what value is an idol carved by craftsmen or an image that teaches lies for the one who makes it trusts in his own creation? He makes idols that cannot speak. Woe to him who says to wood, come to life. 
or the lifeless stone, wake up. Can it give guidance? It's covered with gold and silver. There's no breath in it. And so lastly, he's judging their idolatry. I think it's so fascinating to hear like the God of the universe talk about idols that we worship Um, because he talks about it in a way that is almost mocking, like he just makes it sound so foolish, right? You know, I always feel like we need to point this out every time we read anything about idols in the Old Testament because it is silly. Oh, why are you talking to wood, expecting it to answer? Um, Like our idols are way more sophisticated, but they're no less foolish, right? God says, I'm judging you for that. You're going to fall because of it. And then he ends with this statement. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. So God says to Habakkuk, listen, I've heard what you're asking. I know that they are bad. I know just how bad they are. I know how bad they are in ways that you don't even realize. And they're gonna be held accountable. They are eventually going to fall to nothing. That's what's going to happen to this wicked empire of Babylon. And he reminds Habakkuk, I am in my holy temple. I'm on my throne. Be silent. Listen. What he's saying is I'm in control of this. I'm in control of all of this. None of this stuff that you're seeing has knocked me off of my throne. I am still sovereign over all of it. Just wait. It will happen. Now, next week, we're going to look at how Habakkuk responds to this moment. But I thought we'd just stop there because, gosh, um, this is a relatable moment, right? You know, if you've lived any length of life and experienced any amount of suffering or just even looked around at the world, I, I can relate to what Habakkuk is saying. Like, what's happening doesn't seem right, God. And God says to him what he often says to us. I know, I see it, I am in control, I will make it right, just not yet. Wait. That's the beginning uh, of this chapter of God's response. I think it makes it so relevant. God says in verse three, for the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and it will not prove false. It didn't prove false. Everything God said in this chapter happened to Babylon. But then God says, though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and it will not delay. It's one of the hardest things I think we ever hear from God, but one of the most important things we could receive from God is when God says, wait. God says, I I see the end of this thing. I see it. I'm in the end of this thing because I'm sovereign, but the thing that I'm going to do is not going to be done just yet. And just because it lingers, don't give up. Wait for it. You know what's especially sobering about this? Um, If you know your history, you know this. It didn't even happen in Habakkuk's lifetime. God says, Habakkuk, wait, I'm going to do this. Just wait for it. Habakkuk died and Babylon was still Babylon. God's people were not restored. He's talking about the day when the Messiah comes and all that sort of... The Messiah didn't come for 600 years And God hears Habakkuk's complaint and he says, it's coming, just wait for it. 
It will not prove false. It will certainly come. Let me tell you something that, uh, maybe it's just me. I, it's, I want to tell you the truth. This is going to hurt a little. Um, waiting is a really big part of being the people of God. It's unavoidable. That is true. Waiting is a really big part of being the people of God. I think this is one of the reasons why this passage is quoted three times in the New Testament. Like in Romans 1, Paul says, the righteous will live by faith. Um, it's straight out of Habakkuk 2. Paul knew his history, and he knew this, that to be the people of God, if you read the Old Testament, it means that you had to hope and wait constantly for this future that had not yet come. Now, Paul is on the other side of the Messiah. So after Jesus did actually come, he knows Jesus started something, but then he left and he said, I'm going to come back and I'm going to finish it and restore every last thing on earth. But not yet. And so Paul says, the righteous will live by faith. He borrows Habakkuk's words to say, we are both having faith in what Jesus has accomplished and having faith in what he is still going to accomplish. Faith is waiting. Those things are inseparable. Our salvation, God's kingdom, um, I, Kyle always uses this phrase, we have to realize those are a now and a not yet sort of thing. It's both now and not yet. Like, like we've tasted some of it, we've tasted some of the redemption that Jesus has for us, but also each of us are waiting, longing, desperate like Habakkuk for, to be delivered from this broken world and all the brokenness that we experience to be redeemed. Faith is waiting, and, and we call ourselves, we're people of faith. So waiting is a really big part of what we signed up for. Let me ask, what are you waiting for? Does something spring to your mind? What is that thing, that longing in your heart Habakkuk's longing for justice. He's longing for the day when God's people would care for one another and care for the world around them. It, like he's longing for that. He's waiting for that. God speaks to that. What are you waiting for? What are you longing for? Is there a hope in your heart that has been deferred? Maybe even permanently so. Maybe even that hope is gone. I wanted it, I longed for it, it will never come back. Are you waiting for healing? Are you waiting for reconciliation with someone or something? Are you waiting for something that's broken to be redeemed? What does it look like to wait in faith when the promise lingers? That's what Habakkuk has to figure out, that's what each of us has to figure out. Listen, I really don't want to give you trite answers to a question that is that big. How do we wait faithfully? Um, I, I do want to point out maybe just a couple truths that has helped me frame this behavior of waiting that God asks so often of us in my soul. Maybe this will be helpful for you. First, I, I think we need to observe this. Um, just an observation. God doesn't think about time like we do. Like, obviously so, right? But, but we need to remind ourselves, God does not think about time the way that we do. Waiting is not going to be about us trying to get God to honor our timing, but waiting is the other thing. It is about us learning to somehow think about time the way that he does. Let me explain what I mean. Like, uh, we, we know God is eternal. We would all say, is God eternal? Yes, we all know the answer to that. 
What that means is not that he lives forever. It actually means that he lives outside of time. And so you, you can think of time as like this string um, it, th- that we are all anchored to, right? Like we can't escape it. We can't speed it up. We can't slow it down. We can't make it move backwards. We are anchored to the string. It is moving and we can't do anything about it, right? God is not in any way anchored to the line of time. Time does not affect him in any way. And because of that, we were talking about our approach of time. Some of us are really future focused. Some of us are maybe focused on the past. Some of us are really fixed in the present and very present in the moment. What's fascinating about God is he is fully present in all three. Like he's fully present in the future. He's fully present here and now. And he's also fully present in the past, which will make your head hurt if you think about it too much. It's hard just to even wrap your mind around what it means for God to be totally unanchored to time in the way that we are. At the very least, though, we have to acknowledge that because of that truth of God, that he is going to think about time in relation to us differently than we would think about time in relation to us. Let me give you one example. God relates to us as if we are eternal because we are. That's how he's going to relate to us. When he looks at you, he doesn't look at you as, you know, you only have a few years left. He looks at you as if you have an infinite amount of time because you are eternal. We all die, but we also know that is not the end. Death is just that moment where, our anchored, uh, where we are anchored to the timeline and we are freed from the timeline. This is what it says in 2 Corinthians 5, to be absent in the body is to be present with God. So we're no longer here, we are somehow with him. And by the way, lest you think that's some just religious superstition, there is all sorts of stuff in science and astrophysics and quantum mechanics that would suggest that that is in fact how time works. And there are potentially places like where God is that time does not work in that same way. So God is gonna relate to us always as if our death is not the end. Doesn't that explain a lot? What's tough is, We, we can try, but nine times out of ten, we are going to relate to God as if our death is the end. It's just natural. It's human nature. He doesn't see it that way, but we almost only see it that way. I think that's why he asked Habakkuk to wait for something that wasn't going to happen for 600 years on the timeline, right? God's acting as if, and he says, though it lingers, you're going to see it. It's going to show up. God's acting as if Habakkuk would see these things happen because Habakkuk has seen these things happen. You know, Habakkuk is eternal just like you and I. Habakkuk exists still, even though he's died. Habakkuk saw the fall of Babylon. Habakkuk saw the coming of the Messiah. And so I think part of what waiting does for us in our life is it forces us to live with God's reality and to see ourselves the way that God sees us, where everyone is eternal, everyone lives forever, and the only question is, will they live forever in fellowship with God? God says, that's what's true of you. God says, you can start that fellowship now. You can adopt my perspective about your life in relationship with time. You can adopt that perspective, be willing to wait for the promise, even though it lingers, we'll wait for it. God declares we have infinite time at our disposal, and I I 
promise you this, in a room like this, we probably all have things that we are waiting for, and if we're honest, we probably will not see them on this earth. But faith is trusting that because of Christ, we will see them. Because of Christ, the promise, even though it lingers, we will wait. And so when we view it that way, we realize this, that waiting is faith and waiting really is worship because waiting is a declaration that God is right about us. Waiting by its very nature declares God's ways are true, that we will live forever and that the way he sees us is in fact more true than the way we see ourselves. Waiting declares there's more to this world than just the physical, that there is an afterlife, there is eternal life, and that's what we have faith in. You know, I, I don't know if that makes me feel better, but it does do something to my heart. Uh, it reframes maybe some of the reason why God might ask us to wait. Waiting with God does something good to our soul. It, it doesn't make it necessarily easier, but it, it helps me understand how it forms me a little bit to say, God, I, I'm going to trust what you say about the nature of my life. Waiting is so central to being a person of faith. And that makes me think, again, about airports, of course. I like airports because of the anticipation, because like waiting for something really good uh, is fun. But as you know, uh, Sometimes air travel is the worst <laughs> because it doesn't go right. And then you're like waiting indefinitely and it's not the fun sort of waiting. Um, it's the worst kind. For example, a few weeks ago, my family and I, we got to spend the night in Terminal C of the Dallas-Fort Worth Airport, uh, which is not as much fun as it sounds. Um, I like airports, but even I have a limit. Uh, and I discovered that limit at about four in the morning in Dallas-Fort Worth. Um, I also discovered this. I've passed the age where I can effectively sleep on the floor. <laughs> I don't know what age that is, but it's somewhere before 45. But what's weird is my wife is a little bit older than me. She was sleeping just fine, like, right? I'm laying on the floor. I'm exhausted. I'm like, but I, like, I'm so tired, but I can't sleep. And like, it's a concrete floor. That's just not happening. So I'm walking around. I'm looking at my family, resenting them because they're all asleep. Um, but also realizing that they're shivering because on this particular night, it was 20 degrees in Dallas, which is rare, but it was 20 degrees in Dallas and the whole airport was just freezing. And I'm walking around this empty uh, terminal trying to make time move faster just so that our plane would get here and we could go home. Not the sort of fun waiting that I love about airports. You know, uh, the only thing that is open in the Dallas-Fort Worth airport in the middle of the night is 7-Eleven. Do you know that 7-Eleven sells blankets? I don't know if they all do, but the one in DFW does. Um, they sell blankets. They, this is the blanket. I, I don't know if you can tell from where you're sitting. This is not a very high quality blanket. Um, but if you had seen the price tag, you would have thought that must be the highest quality blanket that you could ever get. Um, but it was the only blanket they had at 7-Eleven. And so I Look at my freezing family, I go to 7-Eleven, and I'm like, oh, they have blankets, I'll take four blankets, and I paid, I don't know, $1,000, I know, it's <laughs> way too much for these four things. Um, I walked over to my family, and I, you know, covered them while they slept. Uh, sometimes I get it right as a husband, Becky 
said to me later, she said, I don't know if I've ever felt so loved as I did in that moment. I lay in there shivering and you showed up with that dumb blanket. Um, <laughs> because she had resigned herself to the miserable sort of waiting, right? Just shivering, just time, come on. Oh, it's only been one minute, you know? But then this cheap 7-Eleven blanket made her feel like she was seen in that moment, like she's not alone, like someone is present with her in it, no matter how miserable it is. Sometimes waiting is fun. Sometimes waiting is misery, like that airport. Uh, you know, in Habakkuk, God's people, that was the hard sort of waiting. That was miserable waiting. Um, I don't know where you are. You might not be enjoying the waiting that you're doing. I, I think what's most important about the waiting, what God most wants you to know, is that you're not alone in it. Is that somehow he is with you, even in those hard moments that feel like waiting on a cold airport floor. God sees us and God waits with us. He is present in it too. And while he will not make time speed up for us, he may just have a blanket. He may just have something to be with us. His word to Habakkuk and his word to you is never, you go wait. His word is always, let's wait together. Adopt my mindset here. I don't know what you're waiting for. I just, I, I know he's going to ask you to wait. I, I want you to know it's an invitation to see yourself the way that he does as eternal. You have, as it turns out, an infinite amount of time. For this redemption to happen in your life, you have an infinite amount of time. Though it lingers, wait for it. And I think it's also an invitation to see that he's waiting with you and to experience his presence in the waiting. I just want to speak this over us. The promise will not prove false. It will not, whatever it is. Though it lingers, wait for it. God, we come to you. Some of us anticipating something great. Some of us shivering on the floor. Um, help us to trust that what you say is true. Help us to trust what you believe about us, about the eternal nature of our souls, about the life that you've given us in Jesus Christ. We wait with you, Lord. Be with us.